the question that we have before us this morning is, what is it that you delight in more than anything else? What is it in your life that, if it was taken away, it would leave the greatest void? Something that would leave you feeling absolutely without strength, malnourished, having no purpose to face the day ahead, to finish your course? What is it that you treasure most? What is it that you hold most tightly, most dearly in this life? That's what we're going to explore this morning, and it's made clear to us by David in the psalm, Psalm 19. Open your Bibles to Psalm chapter 19. And as you're opening your Bibles, would you stand? Psalm 19. This is the word of the Lord. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day, pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, And like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right. Rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there's great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. O Lord, that's our prayer before you this morning. We have your word before us, your word of light and life, your revelation to us. We praise you that you've made yourself known to us Now may we delight in it more than anything. May the meditations of our hearts this morning 
the words that are spoken as you speak to us? Would they be acceptable in your sight, pleasing, for we delight in these things. We delight in you, our God. Amen. Please take a seat. The thought that David has before us this morning is that this is something that you need to delight in more than anything else. This is the thing on earth that is worth all of your delight, all of your pleasure, all of your taste, savoring, all of your enjoyment, more than anything else that the world has to offer. This is what offers true, satisfying pleasure forever. So last week, we looked at the first six verses of Psalm 19, and in it, we see God's general revelation to us through what he's created, through his world, through the things that have been made, specifically through the skies. The skies declare the glory of God. They reveal his handiwork, the wisdom and knowledge with which he made the world. So they reveal to us something of God. They reveal to us God's power, his wisdom, his glory, his extraordinary mind and creativity. And it's enough to make us accountable for a response. But God's revelation to us in his word is not the greatest part of his revelation. It's not complete. This is what God has done to make himself known to all people all over the earth. But he has done something more, something greater, something more complete and comprehensive that shows us all the breadth of the truth of God that he has for us. And that's found in the next few verses, which are verses 7 through 10, which we're looking at this morning. Just verses 7 through 10. And in here we find God's special revelation to us in his word. What he's written down for our instruction. The ways we can specifically know about God and know what it is that we need to know to be in relationship with him. So this is, as a reminder, a poem. It's Hebrew poetry. And it's written with a lot of pictures. And it's written with repetition. And it's written in a a style that's not to be taken as scientific literature, but it's to be taken as it's written, as poetry. David wrote this, and it's a, it's a psalm about 3,000 years old, but it has stood the test of time, and its words are no less true and relevant to us today than they were when they were written 3,000 years ago. These verses, it's also worth noting, are written in the context of a believer. They're written from the perspective of someone who knows God. Not the unbeliever, but someone who believes in God and has a relationship with him, savingly, by faith in Jesus Christ. And that'll be important to realize. So God wrote a book, and we can know him by what he's created in his world and what he has written down for our instruction in his word. Look at verse 7. It says, the law of the Lord 
And we'll see this pattern. We have six statements all in a row that say, this is the pattern, a title for God's word, and then it says a characteristic, an attribute of God's word, and then it says an effect of God's word. We have this six times. What is God's word called? What is God's word like? And what is the effect of God's word? And one of the things that could be easily missed in here is each of these six statements has in the middle of it the Lord. The Lord. Just in case you missed who's speaking to us this morning, the law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commandment of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, the rules of the Lord. It's God himself who's speaking to us. And what's amazing is it's God himself, Yahweh, in the first part of Psalm 19, we have God revealed to us as El. He refers to himself as God. And he's God generally known to all people as the one who is the creator. But here we have God the Lord. The word behind that, Yahweh. God, the covenant-keeping God. God, the one who has revealed himself to his people Israel and to us just like we were listening to in the kids' memory verse song. He's God, the covenant-keeping God, who keeps his covenant forever and ever, and his steadfast love to his children. That's the God who's speaking to us this morning. So there's no question who the source is. Verse 7. We'll go through each of these six sections uh, fairly quickly, and uh, the main point is to see what, how, how comprehensive God's word is. So let's see that. Verse seven, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. And here perfect, what it means is it's complete. It's total, it's comprehensive. It speaks to every area of life. We learned that when we were going through first and second Timothy. God's word is spoken of as something that is relevant to every area of life. It speaks to everything. It gives us everything that we need for life and godliness at the present time. And it is given to us with a purposeful effect. It's given to us to revive our souls. What this means is to draw us back into the proper state it means to turn something back. It means to bring something back to how it should be. It means to bring back into proper order. Psalm 23, you'll know this psalm, probably the most popular, familiar passage in all of the Old Testament. And in it, you remember halfway through, David writes, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. He is completely without hope. He's saying, I feel like I'm drawing near to death. I'm in such deep darkness, but I'm not afraid because he remembers the covenant promises of God. And at the end he says, it's that he will live forever. In his despair, his soul is revived because he remembers the word 
of the Lord. That's what God's perfect, complete word does for us. It is so complete that at any point in our lives, our souls can be revived. When we're in the depths of despair and sadness and grief, our souls, our hearts from the inside can well up with new life because we remember who God is and we remember what he is going to do, that he has promises to sustain us through what we are facing and to give us in the day to come eternal life. It sustains us. It means that we never have to be afraid. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Here's an example in life. Say you found yourself in a pattern of sin or say you feel like you are in a spiritual desert without much spiritual vitality. You feel far from God. You feel like his, his promises are far from you. They're out there, but they're not connected to you in a living way. You can look to his word. Take, for example, John chapter 10. These are the words of the great shepherd, Jesus Christ. He says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. That's a word from the Lord that revives the soul, the weary soul, when it needs a word like that. It offers assurance of forgiveness. It puts the heart, the soul, back in order, back in its proper place. If you're sad, there is deep happiness now in God and in the age to come, eternal, complete happiness and joy. The perfect completeness of God's word restores your discouraged soul. The next statement he has, it says, the testimony of the Lord is sure making wise the simple. The testimony is God's own testimony to itself, himself. It's his witness to his will. All of these that we'll see are just new words that have been used, not new, they're words that have been used all through the Bible, and they all describe God's written word. So in David's poetic language, he's going to unfold all these different words that all mean different aspects of the same thing. It's, it's like looking, looking at a diamond and you see the wonder of what it is, but you see all the different facets of it. And uh, that is what God's word is. It is a wonderful thing that we can never get to the bottom of. So, verse 7 in the, sef- the second half, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. We learned last week that the sky testifies to God. It tells us something about who God is and what he's like. But this is a testimony that's greater, that's more complete, that tells us more than what the creation could ever tell us. For it tells us 
how we can find eternal life. It tells us how we can find forgiveness of sins, how we can know Jesus Christ, our Savior, and how we can live in eternal communion with him. And it's sure. It means that it's reliable. It's trustworthy. It's firm. It's more firm a foundation than anything on this earth, to say the least. It's something to be believed. There's absolutely no doubt about it. And it's because it's based on God's complete knowledge. God is all-knowing, so what he reveals to us is reliable. This word sure comes from uh, the same word that where we get the word amen. It's something that we can, we can look at, we can read about, and we can say, yes. I, yes, I can believe in that. Yes, I can trust in that. Yes, I can found my life upon that. It's something that we can respond to in the affirmative. And the effect it has is that it makes us wise. To David and to people in the Old Testament, to be wise was to know rightly and to also know how to act with that right knowledge. So it's to know what God knows and it's to know how to respond to what God has for us. Now, wisdom is uh, something that the Bible says quite a bit about. Uh, Psalms says a lot about it. Proverbs obviously says a lot about it. And the apostles in the New Testament have a lot to say about wisdom and a lot to say about the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. And those two things are contrasted. And there's never been a time where they've been in more clear contrast than now, I would say. And I think all of us could say this, that the wisdom of this present world is not the wisdom that we find revealed in the Word of God. Now, if we're talking about wisdom as the use of knowledge in the right way, well, the modern man would have a lot to say about how great our current wisdom is. Uh, you might have seen on the news just recently an amazing thing. The second patient, uh, the last one was 12 years ago. The second one just recently was reported cured of HIV, the virus that leads to AIDS through uh, a, a bone marrow transplant. And there are these amazing developments that we can all look at and we can say, wow, we have a lot of knowledge. We have growing, increasing amounts of knowledge, and we know increasingly what to do with this knowledge for our good, for the, the furthering of humanity. And there is a lot of reason to the natural man to take great comfort in all of this great wisdom and knowledge that we have accumulated and that we exemplify We might say in the modern person that has things apparently all figured out that this world just came into existence of no apparent reason. 
and evolved, and we find ourselves today here based on nothing more than the random chance and the workings out of nothingness, hopelessness. And that's the great wisdom of this world. That is supposed to be the wonderful truth, the scientific knowledge that we can get so excited about in this life. But there's no hope in it. And it is completely antithetical to God's revealed wisdom. Romans 1 says, Claiming to be wise, the people in this world became fools. They didn't recognize God as the creator. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They exchanged the glory of God for secular humanism, for materialism, for moral relativism, and all of it to their great undoing. The world cannot make you wise, but God's word can make wise the simple. In Proverbs, the simple, it's, it's not a good thing to be simple. It's to be foolish, open-minded. Things kind of go in your head and they fall the other side. But in Psalms, David's actually using this in a good light. He's saying the simple in, in that you are a person that is humble enough to say, I need instruction. I don't know. I need to know. And that kind of person God will speak to through his word. God will speak to the humble and instruct him in the way he should go. Makes wise the simple, gives understanding. The only way to be wise in this life and forever is to by faith Come to God in his word. Through the illumination of the Holy Spirit, receive eternal life and know God. Do you know very little? Do you know very little about God? Do you know very little about how you are to live? Then go to God as a simple person, as a slightly feeble-minded person, still in your flesh, and God will instruct you. God will give you wisdom. He will make you wise, though you were simple. John Calvin says, understanding is the most excellent endowment of the soul. And this is true, because the word of God makes clear that we know God through understanding, through knowledge. We know the knowledge of the glory of God ultimately in the face of Jesus Christ in his word. So that's the second thing. The third thing that we find is starting in verse 8. The precepts of the Lord are right. The precepts are God's governing rules. Imagine God as the ruler, as the governor, as the king. These are the rules that he says you must follow and they're good. They're right. It means by saying right that it's straight. You imagine a, a straight line, or if it's in, three, in two dimensions, it's a, a flat surface. It's completely without wavering. It goes from this end to this end, 
completely straight. It's like a plumb line. It's like a particle of light shooting through the air. Unwavering. It's that kind of standard that everything in the universe has to be compared to. In this world, it is seen as very restrictive, very much like uh, bondage. To have to follow rules, especially the rules of some governor, some supreme authority over you, it's very restrictive. It really cramps your style. But the Bible says that the rules of the Lord are right and they rejoice the heart. The rules of the Lord, not not bondage, not being kept from freedom, they're actually a cause for rejoicing. To the unbeliever, they're restrictive. To the believer, the rules of the Lord are cause for rejoicing. They're freedom. So, first, in verse 7, we saw that the word of the Lord revives us. Here we say more than that. It rejoices our hearts. It not only brings us back into the proper order, but it makes us joyous and overflowing. Now, the rightness of God's rules, if God made a rule and said, this is right, or God himself was right and made a rule, that would mean that it's something that needs to be obeyed. It would necessitate obedience. And that's what we find in the second half of verse 8. God's rightness requires obedience. So we find that God's word is now described as a commandment. It says the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Pure here is free from any moral blemish, free from any spot, any stains, any impurities. It's to the point of being, imagine a surface that's polished perfectly. It's radiant. It's shining. That's what God's word is like. It is completely without blemish. And what's the effect of God's word being so pure, so without blemish? It enlightens the eyes. In Psalm 13, verse 3, David is in the absolute depths of despair. Sort of like in Psalm 23. But this seems to be even worse. And he says, Light up my eyes, Lord, lest I die, lest I sleep the sleep of death. So God's word, it not only brings us back into the proper order, it also makes us wise and it rejoices our hearts 
and it lights up our eyes. The Old Testament looks at the eyes as something where if they're being lit up, it's communicating what's happening in the heart. The New Testament would agree as well, Jesus would, that out of your heart, uh, your, your eyes speak. Your eyes communicate in the Old Testament that you have something inside you that can't keep itself inside. There's a rejoicing that's inside of you that comes out through the eyes. And another thing that's worth pointing out here is that it's, uh, it's, it's communicating that we see clearly. And I think this is very much in line with what, what David says, that, the, that the, the word of God is pure. Now, if you're taking in something that's pure, then what's coming out of you and the way that you're processing it is going to lead naturally to purity. The word of God is pure, it's without blemish, and it speaks to us, and it allows us to see clearly. I think of Job. Satan implored God to allow him to try Job. And he experienced the greatest trials. And he lost everything except his own life. And after that, after losing everything and seeming to have no purpose to exist to the natural person, he had something that allowed him to carry on. He had a clarity of sight. And what did he say? He said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That is great clarity of thought. That's clarity that this world doesn't have to offer. That's uncommon clarity. That's what God's word has to give us because it is pure. Now we have one more verse that simply extols God's word. It just tells us how great his word is. And there are two sections here. The first is found in verse 9. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The fear of the Lord here, you'll notice it doesn't quite follow the pattern of the previous words in English. The fear of the Lord is referring to the understanding that leads to the fear. So it's putting that in place of uh, a larger thought. So imagine, what does God instruct us to do that leads to fear? How does God instruct us to worship him? How does God instruct us to revere him? How does God instruct us to respond to him? That is the fear of the Lord. And here, the fear of the Lord is clean, and it means much the same as that previous word, pure. In, in this sense, it means it's not mixed with anything. It's not like an alloy of, of metal. It, it's pure. It's completely God's word. It's without corruption. And what causes death? What leads to death in this world? It's, well, you could say it's disease, it's sickness. It's ultimately corruption. 
And if something's without corruption, it doesn't die. And that's what God's word is like. God's word is clean, it's pure, it's without corruption, it's undefiled, it's just God's word. It's just his thoughts. It's undefiled and it lasts. It says it endures forever. It's the same then when David wrote it as it is now today. It's still relevant 3,000 years later and it'll be relevant until Jesus Christ returns and the word of the Lord will be relevant forever. Matthew 5.18 says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. God's word endures forever. Now that's something in this world that we can place our hope in. The wisdom of this world is different now than it was when I was born, and it's different now than when many of you were born before me, and uh, the wisdom of this world changes with every whim and uh, fancy of mankind, and it changes with technological advancements. Morality seems to change, seems to be whatever you want it to be, but the word of the Lord stands and is pure forever. That's something you can trust in. Also, the end of verse 9, the rules of the Lord are true and they're righteous altogether. These are the judgments, the verdicts of God. These are the things that he declares his will. What are God's judgments? There's acts. They're his laws. They're everything that he says in his word about what he does and what he will do that reveals his will. Essentially, God's rules are meaning they are his revelation to us of his will. So in God's word, we find the will of God. And it says, God's rules are true. And they're righteous altogether. They're firm. They're steady. They're something that can't be overturned. This world is full of moral relativism. It's full of the notion that, well, what is true to me might not be true to you, but I don't hold that against you unless what you say is true conflicts with what I say is true. And it's quite the mess that we found ourselves in. And none of it makes sense because all of it is based on the wisdom of man. And it's fallacious in the end because it does not have the firm foundation of the true word of God. But unlike the wisdom of this world, God's word cannot be overturned. It will never change. You won't turn on the news and find that God's will has changed today. We find that the will of of people changes a lot. We find that the will of our politicians change a lot. We find that our own wills change a lot. But we can found ourselves, our hearts, minds, and souls in an unchanging word, a true, reliable, steady word from the Lord. And that's what we're to do. And not only 
are the rules of the Lord true, but they're altogether righteous. Every single one of them is in conformity with who God is. Every single one of them communicates something about what God is like. What this means is that if in your moral relativism you reject God's rules, you reject God. Because God's rules flow from God. If we reject what God says, we reject God himself. He has given us a book. He's given us his revealed will. And it is one cohesive, comprehensive, complete package that gives us everything that we need for life and godliness. And if we do not accept all of it, we disregard God. We reject God. We must accept all of what God has for us because it all flows from him. So, if I haven't lost you in all of these descriptions of God's word, God's word is complete. It's something we can say amen to. It's something that's straight, pure, clean. It lasts forever. It's firm. It's steady. It affects our souls, our hearts, our minds, our eyes, the whole person. And it revives us. It makes us wise. It makes us rejoice. It makes your eyes light up. It's without impurity. That's a pretty good description of God's word. It's probably the most comprehensive description of God's word in all of scripture. There's a lot that can be said about God's word and it's uh, amazing what the psalmist packages in these few words. That's, that's, that's our first section. The last part is our second point. This is really just two points. So our first point is that God's word is complete in its nature and its effects. And the second thing we find in these verses is that God's word is to be therefore treasured above everything in this world. God's word is the greatest treasure on earth. Look at verse 10. David has to here turn to superlatives. He can't He can't say anything greater. This is the greatest thing that he can think of to communicate how much we should desire God's word. And first, actually, let me offer one warning. This is important. You can think very highly about God's word and you can be completely dead in your soul. You can think very highly of God's word, and you can be a Pharisee. You can be dead on the inside. You can be what Jesus called a whitewashed tomb. You can be a hypocrite. You can read God's word. You could even be deceived into thinking that you enjoy God's word in an intellectual sense, and it stimulates your mind, and it interests you in its vastness in its poetic nature. But 
But if you do not treasure God's Word and love God's Word, then God's Word is having no effect on you, ultimately. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You want to know the state of your heart? Look at where your treasure is. He says, God's word is more satisfying, more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, and sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. He doesn't, he, he can't think of anything greater to say. He's saying God's word is to be desired more than gold. Yes, even much fine gold. It, he says it, it, the greatest amount, he says much, greatest amount, and the greatest quality, fine gold. It means pure gold, completely pure. The most valuable thing on the planet when David was writing this was pure gold. And more than that, much pure gold. Lots of pure gold. There's nothing more valuable in David's eyes than much pure gold. It has the greatest value in the earth's economy. But here he says, God's word is to be desired more than gold. Yes, much fine gold. What is it to you that is valuable? What is it to you that you desire? What do you place importance on? What would it be that if it was lost, you'd feel without hope, without purpose? Even the good things in this world that are given to us from God are they more important to us than hearing from God himself? Without God's word, we don't hear from God. And they're more fulfilling than all pleasure. This is the picture that we get in honey. It's not only more valuable than anything in this world, it's also more pleasurable than anything in this world. It goes beyond even value to something that touches your heart, that excites your soul. It's, it's honey. It's the sweetest thing to David. I don't know what you, what you enjoy eating, but it's better than that. It's better than, it's better than chocolate. It's better than candy. It's better than a well-cooked steak. It's better than the finest food you could ever imagine tasting. This honey. It's honey, but more than that, it's drippings right from the honeycomb. It's pure honey. It hasn't been processed. There's been nothing that has compromised its quality. Nothing that's compromised its sweetness. It tastes exactly like it does right from the honeycomb. And that's God's word. It comes directly from God's mouth. 
and it flows forever and ever, revealing to us more of God, and it is sweet. It is more pleasurable. It's more to be enjoyed than anything in this world. God's word is a feast to David. In Psalm 16, chapter 11, David makes this thought again. He says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The pleasures of God are readily available to us whenever we would taste and see that the Lord is good in his word. And others in scripture would tend to agree with David. Listen to Job. He says, I have not departed from the commandment of his, that's God's lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. Do you treasure God's word more than your portion of food? Do you desire God's word more than breakfast in the morning, more than dinner at night? Jeremiah said, your words were found, and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. God's words are better than any pure gold or drippings of the honeycomb. They're greater in value and in delight. They're greater than all money, than all pleasure, God's words are comprehensibly more delightful than all of this world has to offer. So do you treasure God's word more than anything in this world? More than anything the world has to offer? Would you give up everything you have to taste the word of the Lord to taste the greatest delights that it has in it. To explore it forever and ever and never get to the depths of its enjoyment, its value, its sweetness to your soul. No high view of Scripture will be sufficient if you don't have a happiness in it. Down deep in the bedrock of your understanding of the scriptures. If you don't have a taste for it, a zest for it, a relish for God's word, no matter of importance that you put on it makes any difference in the end. God's word is life. David says in Psalm 19, in Psalm 119, Psalm 19 is sort of the condensed version of Psalm 119. And in Psalm 119, David has a lot to say about God's word. Here's something. He says, If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. And so it is for all of us. Let's pray. Oh, our God, 
May your law be our delight. We would have perished in this world in the age to come if we did not know your word and did not know you in it. May we never forget your precepts, for by them you have given us life. O Lord, make your word our greatest delight in all of this word, all this world. Would we be ready to forsake everything for your word, to hear from you? Because in your word we know you, we are instructed, we're made wise, we can delight, we have a firm foundation, we have hope, we have life. And we know you, our God. Be glorified in your word in our lives. Amen.